let me recraft and let me try and bring it back in so you guys can see where we're at in Philippians. Because today we're going to draw on the conclusion of a pretty significant passage, okay? We said that, that starting in 127, and Paul wraps it up in 218, he draws in on the idea of what it is to be worthy of the gospel. And so we're going to be pulling on all the things that he said from 127 all the way through this passage. And that is the setting that we understand today's passage through, okay? Now, if you've been grumbling, if you've been disputing this week, and you say, man, Matt heard about it, and he's nailing me on it. Uh, I picked this, I mean, just the way that it fell, this has worked out a couple of months ago. You can blame Carol B. if you're going to blame anybody. But, just the way that it happened. Some passages are more fun for other people than they are for ourselves. But, uh, he, so he's, he's structuring it from 127 through 218. And so let me bring 127 back up. It's this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this is an all-encompassing statement. Be worthy of the gospel. So Paul has spent the next several verses, chunks of scripture, working through what that means. Well, a little bit of what that means is putting others ahead of yourself. And so I met with the Adult 7 class this morning, and I said, in the realm of music, this is what that means. To put others ahead of yourself means all the young people in church stand up and say, man, we want more hymns, we want more traditional. I'd really appreciate it if that preacher would wear a suit and tie. Maybe he'd bang on the pulpit a little bit more. Maybe we'd get a bigger pulpit. And so that's their cry. And the older people in the church when it comes to putting others' needs ahead of yourselves in, in the realm of music, what that means is they say, oh no, what we want is more electric guitar. What I want is a guy on a steel drum. What I want is a smoke machine. <laughs> or maybe they're really liberal what they say. What I want is the preacher to smoke. <laughs> I'm allergic to cigarette smoke. That's not going to happen. Sorry. But it's the type of deal that when you walk up to somebody and you say, uh, Brother Mosley, what is your preference? That you look around and you see who's around you and you say, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, Bob, what is your preference? And say, Bob, what's your preference? And you turn to Patty and say, I don't know, Patty, what's your preference? You see, because the desire in your life is to advance the gospel so much more in the lives of people around you that your own preference really has no place. Because your preference is to advance the gospel in other people's lives so you look not to your own preference, not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So this is the idea that Paul's driving in, that the gospel is so much more important than what Matt wants to do, or what Patty wants to do, or Justin wants to do, or really any of us, that's all about what Jesus wants to do and what he wants us to be. And then today as we look at this passage, do you remember when we were in 5 through 11? You know, it was this really difficult passage about Jesus. And it said, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be really laid hold of and taken advantage of. But he lowered himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So now that Paul has hit that section, everything is driving towards this Christ hymn. Everything is driving, and he's directed their attention towards this Christ hymn. So two weeks ago, what we talked about is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? And so it's this idea that when you look at Christ, that he draws in you reverence. That he draws in you this, this sober mind. That you're so directed on him 
that he creates in you this feeling of, of really striving hard and leaning hard into the gospel. You know, some weeks ago on Bryce's birthday, we bought him uh, a glider. It's essentially a bicycle without pedals. The idea being that, that you help them work out balance before you help them work out propulsion. And so I was a little kid. I had training wheels on my bike. And, you know, so you lean hard to the right, you lean hard to the left. It doesn't matter because I keep turning those wheels and I keep heading forward until I crash into something. Well, Valerie and I decided that we would buy Bryce a glider. And so he got in this glider. There's no pedals. And so he pushes with his feet. But it was something I noticed when I had him out a couple of weeks ago, and we're driving down what he refers to as the Muppy Road, that when he's looking ahead of himself, he has this tendency to look straight down. Now, as he's looking straight down, he gets a really good understanding of the ground in front of him. So he sees the contours of it. He sees the rocks. He sees the divots. He sees the dips. And he sees all the things that are right there in front of him. But his balance is bad. I mean... If a police officer is going to drive down our street, they're going to put a breathalyzer on my three-year-old and be like, son, have you been, you've been drinking that, that apple juice, haven't you? And he's like, I love the juice. And so his balance is completely messed up. And so I said, you know, look, I'll work this out with him. And so I started backpedaling away from Bryce, and I got a little distance away. I said, look at Daddy. Keep your eyes on Daddy as I back away from you. And ma'am, when he looked out, when he let his vision be directed further down the road instead of right there, his balance worked out. You see, the idea in this passage is, as we look to Jesus, as we reflect upon him in 5 through 11, that we're not so bothered by all these things going on around us. We don't lose our balance with all these things, because they're so focused on him. And so when we enter this passage today, we do so with the understanding that our minds, our hearts, are focused on Jesus. We're going to be in 14 through 18 today. Let me read it for us. Paul writes in in the second chapter of Philippians, and he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Then he says, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And then he calls to them. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So as Paul opens up this passage, he does so with, this, with an onomatopoeia, which is a really difficult word to spell. And as I put it into my notes, I had a really hard time finding it at dictionary.com. But it's this onomatopoeia. It's this word that kind of creates the sound, like buzz. And so he uses this word in Greek, this gongusmon. And it really just sounds like I'm stumbling over all the, all the syllables and all the consonants, and it doesn't gongusmon. Gongusmon. Say that ten times fast. Or don't. And so he throws out this word, and, and he, what he's doing is, is drawing them back on the Exodus. Do you remember the account of the Exodus when Moses goes as a messenger from God to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh, he's like, God says you need to let these people go. So they have this great back and forth. God wins the day. They leave. And Moses starts leading these people out through the wilderness towards the promised land. But man, you talk about unhappy travel companions. Have you ever taken a road trip with a young child and said, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Imagine doing that over the period of a few decades. Why aren't we there yet? Why? (laughs) Where are you leading us? 
And so they start to grumble. And we see this in a couple places. In Exodus 15, 24, he writes, Moses writes, and he's detailing this. He says, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Man, they're thirsty. There's nothing to drink. And they start, oh, grumble, 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 grumble. Really thirsty. Should have stayed in Egypt. Had plenty to drink there. He's like, really? You wanted to stay there? And they're like, yeah, because we had plenty to drink there. And then later on down the line, it's, you know, they get something to drink, and it's grumble, 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 grumble. Man, we're hungry. Give us something to eat. God sends manna from heaven, and he satisfies their, their hunger. But then Moses has this really interesting line, and he points out that even though they're grumbling, and, and they're going to Moses, and they're complaining to him, and they're frustrated, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry. They go to him, and in verse 8 of chapter 16, Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because God has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. And he tells him, he says, guys, your grumbling isn't against me. It's not against me, it's not against Aaron. But your grumbling is directed at God. And so what Paul does here is let them know that when you grumble against leadership, your grumbling is against God. Now that's a hard word. He tells them that your grumbling is against God. And so there's this grumbling, it's this constant, I, I don't like the way that's done, I just... You know, it's kind of complaining for complaining's sake. So it's not looking for constructive ways of saying, man, we could do this better, but it's just a steady, I don't like that. I just, I just don't care for it. You know, the interesting thing is, is that he doesn't caveat it. He doesn't say, you know, no grumbling and no disputing as it pertains to your favorite flavor of cotton candy. Everybody would be like, well, I don't like cotton candy anyway. He's like, don't grumble about it then. But it's in totality. It's the whole sphere. It says, don't grumble. Don't be like the Exodus generation. That they had God leading them in cloud and in flame. And they had Moses as this messenger of God And even in the midst of that, even in the midst of this visible presence of God, his glory revealed before them, they grumbled. They grumbled and complained, but their grumbling was directed at God. Now, we get into this disputing. So he says, don't grumble and don't dispute. Now, this is an interesting word. Unless you think this is saying, all right, so we can't have a difference of opinion. Is that what Matt's trying to tell me? He's trying to tell me that, you know, that my opinion is worthless, that we can't have a difference of opinion. Well, that's, that's, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. We can't have a difference of opinion. Light, terrified humor. Um, No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What he's talking about is, he said, don't allow your disagreements to drive to the point of division. So if we have certain people in this church Let's take the issue of the sovereignty of God and free will. And so we have people that, that really fall kind of more in line with the reform camp, okay? And they, they look toward the sovereignty of God, and they tend to uphold that really, really strongly, right? Very firm with that. 
And on the other side of the equation, they have those, and they really fall more in line with, not an Arminian camp, they don't believe you can lose your salvation, but they're, they're just further over on this side of it, right? Now these groups get together, and the group over here says, it's all God, it's got nothing to do with me, it's all God. And this side over here gets together, and like, we agree that God's in it, but they work together somehow. Now the point when this becomes unhealthy is that when this side says, you're absolutely wrong, and you're ridiculous, and it draws to the point of division, of divisiveness, but when it draws to the point when the group on this side is driven back into the scriptures, is driven back into investigating what God is saying to them, man, then it's healthy. You see, because then this disagreement drives us to love God more. Because our disagreement, in disagreeing on this side, I'm seeking to understand their position and how I can bolster their position and how I can make strong their position and how I can advance the gospel through their position. And the people on this side say, man, I want God to rain down blessings in your life. And so they're studying the opposite opinion. And they're studying it deeply. And they're loving their brother in the midst of that. Or if you look at the issue of how churches govern, the issue of polity. So we have some that want elders. I mean, it's just like they read the Bible and they say, there's nothing but elders. There can be no other way to understand this. And then you have people on the other side of it that say, you're crazy. It's this way. You know, whatever that is. However you parse it out. Now, where that's destructive is when these two sides come together and they're not seeking to build up their brother in Christ. All they're seeking to do is to prove their point. You see, because as we, as we discuss, as we differ in opinion, if, the, if my objective is to prove my point, I'm at the point of disputing. I'm at the point of disputing. But if my objective is to love God more through the careful study of His Word and to come to a better understanding of how He would have us do things and how He, how he would have us understand things, Man, that's perfectly healthy. And that's perfectly good. And God has gifted us in a variety of ways. He has allowed us to come to different understandings of how things should be done. And that is good and that is healthy. Now, there are things that we just don't disagree on. There are mandates in Scripture that if we take away, then we do damage to the gospel. The person of Jesus, he is fully God and fully man. There's no room for discussion there. You see, because to lean on one side or the other necessarily does damage to the gospel. But on issues of polity and church governance and understandings of of how in the mystery of God that we come to salvation in the first place, what it does is, is draws us back and we have deeper love of God and deeper love for those around us. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And just, just in case you're sitting here and you're saying, well, his, his, his warning, his command not to grumble and not to dispute doesn't apply to me because my cause is just. What's the purpose behind your cause? Is it to prove that, prove that you're right? Or to make God be more magnified in somebody's life? And that is the litmus test that we put when we try and advance something. You understand that? Are we clear? So he tells him, he says, don't grumble, don't dispute. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, that becomes possible. 
And then he writes to me, he says, this is why you don't do that. This is why you don't do that. That you may be blameless and innocent. That you may be blameless and innocent. Now, this is relating back in 110, when Paul wrote to them. In chapter 1 and verse 10, he said, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so this idea of being blameless is that so when people in the community see you, they'll know that, that Doug is upright. They'll know that Doug, I mean, in his business, he's not cheating. He's not cooking the books. He is upright and all that. That's true, right? Okay, yeah, okay. He's giving me the head nod. And so we're blameless in all that we do. We're innocent in all that we do. The women in the community, when people see you, and they talk about how you relate to your children, how you relate to other women, it's, man, that is a blameless woman. That is a woman without any incident, any impropriety. That people would see us and recognize a difference in us. As students in school, I mean, this is the difficult thing, that is you're blameless, is that you're not, you're not causing problems, you're not the source of, of division in the school, even though it's funny to, you know, to, to cause havoc in the classroom, and I certainly caused my share of havoc in the classroom, what the Bible calls us to is to being blameless. What the Bible calls us to is this upright behavior. And he says, innocent. So it's not just that people can't see things in me, it's not just that people can't recognize things in me, but that I actually am innocent. I actually am free of this guilt. That what people see is an actual reality inside me. You see, there's a big difference between not having people observe impropriety and actually being innocent. There's a difference between not being caught and being innocent. What we strive for is to be blameless and innocent. But you know, the interesting thing is, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. I've heard a lot of people say recently that church would be great if it wasn't for all the people. That school would be great if it wasn't for all the students. And that politics would be great if it wasn't for all the politicians. You see, our, our blameless and innocent behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen uh, outside of the influence of others. He continues to write about the crooked times they live in. He says that you're children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, when he tells them, he says, you're, you're children of God, this is, this is a throwback again to the Israelites. This is Paul, which the in, interesting thing is the allusion that this is to is a passage where the Israelites, who had always been referred to as the children of God, are referred to as the one that are crooked, and the ones that are twisted. They're referred to as the ones that are crooked and the ones that are twisted. But when Paul lifts that from its setting and sets it down here in the book of Philippi, he writes to them and he says, you are the children of God. You are to be without blemish. And you exist in the midst of of a crooked and a twisted generation. And man, that's pretty shocking. That's pretty shocking. 
But I started thinking about our generation and our day. Two weeks ago, I read of a man, a 26-year-old man, whose sweet grandmother was going to the store to pick him up something to eat. And upon returning back to the house, she called out from the kitchen, and she said, James, I bought you some chicken salad. Well, James didn't hear her say chicken salad. What James heard her say is, James, you're a chicken. And for whatever reason, this was really, it really struck the wrong chord with this man. And so he calls out and he says, don't call me chicken. And so she comes into the living room to try and explain it. James, I didn't call you chicken. What I bought you was chicken salad. And the return for this act of kindness from this grandmother were broken ribs, broken nose, covered in bruises and scrapes. Man, we live in a crooked, and we live in a twisted generation. We live in a generation that doesn't respect life. And she stood just a few minutes ago talking about this mother who was told to abort her child. You know, we live in a generation where worldwide we abort 42 million children annually. That is 115,000 children a day. We live in a country that aborts 1.21 million children every day, or every year. And for every day, that is 3,300 children. Now let me bring that down for us. This sanctuary sits about 1,200 people filled to capacity. We could fill this thing up three times every day with the aborted children in this country. This is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new phenomenon. Right in the year 177, the church father Athenagoras wrote this. He said, we say that women who endorse, or sorry, who induce abortions are murderers and will have to give account of it to God. For the same person would not regard a child in the womb as a living being and therefore an object of God's care and then kill it. Because abortion's been around for a long time. And the sad reality is that we're doing very little to change that. A couple of weeks ago, when Dan Cathy made his comments about the family, we had people wait hours in line for a chicken sandwich to support him and to support his right for free speech, to support this stand on the family. I mean, we've got a Rafa clinic here in town that is doing a tremendous ministry, reaching out to those who find themselves pregnant and don't know what to do. We'll stand in line for an hour or more for a chicken sandwich to support a man that we've never met for a company that's certainly not hurting financially. But what are we doing to help those that have no voice? What are we doing to help those 3,300 children that are lost every day? We live amongst a crooked and a twisted generation. Crooked gives us the idea, and it's where we get our word, scolios. It's this, that their spine is, is twisted, that they're just crushed and they're twisted that they're not able to think clearly. But this idea of being twisted, 
It's a really interesting word. It paints the picture of clay put on a spinner's wheel. And as it's spun around, it begins to be misshapen. It begins to take, you know, just kind of a vulgar appearance, and it ends up not being good for anything. You see, the people that we encounter every day and that evaluate our actions, they've been putting, put on the spinning wheel of this world, and they've been spun around so fast, and they've been exerted against so much pressure that they're not good for anything. And the only thing that could change that is the saving power of Jesus working in this generation, working in our world. You see, even though that we live in this world, we need to remember that we are, we don't exist on an island, that we're not insulated against those around us. There needs to be a very difference in our belief leading to action instead of just belief leading to more belief and more belief and more understanding. We're not seeking to create PhDs. What we're seeking to, to create are recruits for the message of Jesus for the advancement of the gospel. Paul writes, as he continues to go through this, and he tells them. He wrote and said, you know, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then he talks about them, and he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, this here is Paul referencing back to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 12, in verse 3, we read, and those who are wise shall be like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. You see, as we live blameless lives, as we live lives without blemish in the midst of this crooked, this twisted, this perverse, this awful generation, we do so as luminaries. We shine bright because we have brightness inside of us. Jesus, speaking in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 5, in verse 14 through 16, said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. You see, we see evil and perversion go on at a mass scale every day in our world. But the kicker is, what are you doing about it? You remember that his word was, in all things, do them without grumbling. Are we simply complaining about it? Are we seeking to be an agent of change? Are we seeking to be an agent of change? But this is the interesting thing. Paul sets it up and he tells them, <clears throat> says you exist as stars, Right? You're in the sky, people see you, you're different, you're blameless, you're innocent, you're without blemish. This is how you do that. In verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the gospel. I mean, it seems almost too simple, right? It's like they could have gotten from Paul and said, all right, now this is how you do that. You need to create a five-step plan. What you need to do is step one, identify the enemy. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I, got, I, got, I, got, I got the enemy. Step two, buy some ammo. Oh, okay, I got some ammo. Step three, buy some form of weapon. And they're like, Paul, why aren't you eloquent anymore? He's like, but I'd, anyway. And so 
it's not like he gives this ridiculous five-step five plan for how to combat the world. He gives them one step. He says, hold fast to the gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, live lives worthy of the gospel. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he said, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ. He tells them to stand together. He tells them to transform together. And here he's telling them, keep the gospel at the center. Keep the gospel at the center of everything you do. You hold it fast. You continue to hold it fast. You allow it to permeate every area of your life. So that in my relationship with my wife, the gospel's at the center. In my relationship with my son, the gospel's at the center. In my relationship with my people that I work here with at, at, at Southwestern Seminary, at Ridgecrest, sorry, the gospel is at the center. The gospel permeates every area of my life. And then I expand it outside that and say, as I exist among a twisted and a crooked generation, and as I shine because there's brightness inside of me because of Christ, I do so by holding fast to the gospel, by continuing to press hard into the gospel, by digging further and further into my understanding of the gospel. There is no plateau, there is no retirement, there is no point where I become mature enough, point where I become Christ-like enough, because I have this understanding that he who began a good work in me is faithful to the end, that Jesus is faithful to the end. Now, i got to be honest, this next verse gave me grief, this next part gave me grief. He says, holding fast to the word of life, and then he talks about himself, he says, so that... On the day of Christ, so at his return, I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain. And so I read this. And I started thinking about it. And then I read it in the Greek. And then I read it in the German. And then I read it in Spanish. And I read it in the English again. I don't, I don't know German. I don't know Spanish very well. So those things are just jokes. But I read it. And I sought to understand it. And it bothered me. It just really bothered me. Because it seems to say, Paul doesn't want to be proved that he wasted his time as a result of his ministry with the people in Philippi. As if he's pouring himself out and pouring himself out, but still, at the end of the day, they could ruin the whole thing. So I started thinking, what then would be the application for that? And so I started praying over this passage and just really thinking about it. And then I remembered something. In chapter 1 and verse 21, what does Paul write? He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, the success of this word and how I measure success isn't based upon how many people we have turned out. It's not based upon how mature you get. My success is solely rated upon my dependence and is solely rated upon my faithfulness to this word. Because I found myself in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter, chapter 3, starting in verse 10, 
God has told Ezekiel, he said, I want you to go and I want you to talk to these people that are in exile. They're not going to hear you, which is always an encouraging thing to say before you go speak to somebody. Hey, I want you to go talk to this class, just so you know they're not going to listen to you. So enjoy teaching algebra. You're like, oh, thanks. And he tells Ezekiel, he says, go out, they're not going to hear you. In verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you receive in your heart. So take in the things that I tell you. And hear with your ears. Understand the things that I've spoken to you. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. You see, the call on my life is to obedience. Man, I pray that God raises up people with a burning desire to reach the lost in this town and the world over. I pray that God lights a fire in your heart for evangelism and for discipleship, that you grow in the knowledge of Him. But check this out. That's not on me. And there's a great freedom in that for me. That when I stand here and I preach, I'm not doing so to win your favor. I'm not doing so to win your acceptance. I'm not even doing so so that you'll like me more. I'm doing so because I have this understanding that's found in Hebrews 3.17 that there will come a day that I stand before a holy God and I give an account for my thoughts, for my actions, and for the way that I shepherded this church. So you could pray for me. You could pray for the staff, and you could pray for your leaders that do so with the understanding that we have to stand before a holy God and give an account of those that he's placed in our care. Placed in our care. And so your success isn't dependent upon me. It's dependent upon your humility before God and how much are you willing to be stretched? How much are you willing to be pushed? How much are you willing to yield of yourself to God? And he goes on, continuing with this 121 mindset. He says, it doesn't matter. He says, rejoicing nonetheless, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul looks at it and he says, this is what your faith is. When you go out and you're exercising your faith and you're living out your Christian work, and that is a sacrifice before God. That our thoughts, that our actions that not just our attendance, that not just our Facebook posts, that not just the tweets that we send out, but actually who we are and what we do is an expression of our faith and is a sacrifice offered to God. And then Paul adds on top of it, he says, even if on top of all your sacrificing and on top of all of the things that you're doing, I die. And my life is poured out on top of the sacrifice of your faith. I rejoice. You see, because Paul doesn't measure success on the Philippians' adherence to his instruction. He measures success on living as Christ and an understanding that as he dies, he gets more Christ. And in verse 18, he calls them into himself. He says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
invites them to come. He invites them to buy into this mindset that says, Jesus first. He invites them into this idea and this identity that says, man, it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what trajectory or what path I've set myself on. All that matters is my strict obedience to his word and that he reigns as king in my heart. And if there is a second, it is a distant second, and it pales in comparison to Jesus. Let me pray for us.